Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 218 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Adam Nimoy. He's directed dozens of TV episodes, including science fiction shows like The Outer Limits and Star Trek The Next Generation. He teaches film production and directing at the New York Film Academy, and he's also the author of the book My Incredibly Wonderful Miserable Life, an anti-memoir, which chronicles his recovery from substance abuse. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new documentary, For the Love of Spock, a moving tribute to his father, Star Trek actor Leonard Nimoy. And now, here's our interview with Adam Nimoy. All right, so we're here with Adam Nimoy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, and so your new film is called For the Love of Spock. So just tell us a bit about how this came about. Well, uh, in November of 2014, I approached my dad with the idea of making a Spock documentary. Uh, you know, my dad and I had worked on a, a little documentary about his life growing up in Boston during the Depression, and it was such a great bonding experience. I thought we should kind of do it again. And I was very much aware of the upcoming anniversary of Star Trek, the original series, uh, the 50-year anniversary, and I thought that we should do something to help celebrate that event, 50 years of Spock. And uh, when, I, when I suggested this to my dad, he immediately uh, was supportive of the idea, and we went to work on it. Yeah, I've heard you say that he orig the original concept was going to be very Spock-centric, and it kind of developed as you worked on it? Yeah, I mean, it was going to be a, a specifically a Spock doc. I mean, my dad made it very clear that this was not, uh, you know, he, he was a man of great humility. He didn't need to blow his own horn. It was not the Leonard Nimoy show. It was really going to be just about uh, the inception, creation of Spock, the evolution of the character, and uh, and why Spock has had so much impact for so many years all over the world. Um, and it was very, so it was very specific about Spock and, and not about the career of Leonard Nimoy. But after my dad passed away, um, uh, there was such an outpouring of emotion from, you know, from everywhere, uh, social media and print media and, and people contacting me that, uh, you know, and people kind of like mourning the loss, not only of Spock, but of Leonard, the artist and Renaissance man, that it became clear we needed to expand the film to include his life and legacy as well. Yeah. And I mean, one thing, speaking of his life, that really jumped out at me in this movie is just how many challenges he faced in becoming an actor. Well, yeah, this is a guy who, uh, you know, left home uh, from Boston at age 18. I mean, he told his parents he wanted to become an actor. It's like telling them he wanted to run off and join the circus. They were appalled. Uh, his parents were Russian immigrants. And, uh, you know, and their idea of the American dream was to have uh, their children go to professional school and, 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 you know, practice a profession. His older brother went to MIT and was a chemical engineer for Johnson and Johnson for 30 years. But my dad was not suited for that at all. He was not academically inclined. He barely made it through high school. So, you know, it took a lot for him to, uh, decide to really leave home and travel a three day train trip across country to find his calling in Hollywood. Right, and he said that in 15, before Star Trek, he worked for 15 years as an actor in Hollywood and never had a job that lasted more than two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was more. Like, it was 17 years really before they started in in production on the original series in '66. He arrived in '49, and uh, a lot of small roles. I mean, if you look up the Internet Movie Database, you can see all the the dozens of TV appearances that he made. 
uh, a lot of stage work uh, um, and a lot of uh, and a lot of our jobs really to keep things going during that time. Um, he had married my mother in '55, and my sister uh, arrived then, and then I came in '56. So, guy who had a family of four to support and pursue uh, an acting career. So, and he was, you know, he was a guy who was um, very ambitious and a hard worker, and he did a lot of uh, odd jobs to make ends meet. Right, and there, it was a wide variety of odd jobs too, and lots of different. I mean, he was skilled in lots of different areas. Yeah, like naturally so. I mean, it's still uncanny to me how he managed to know how to do all this. I mean, he was building furniture for our home. I mean, where did he learn these things? I don't even know. And and the the real odd thing to me was he had an incredible mind for numbers and business. I mean, his his business manager said that my dad was probably the only client who really understood what he was doing in terms of all the investment strategy. And and I took a lot of business courses in law school, but my dad, you know, he knew all this stuff. He could crunch numbers in his head. It was I think it was just because he was a good businessman as a kid, you know, earning and doing all these odd jobs. He just he he had a very fine mind for a guy with so little education. Yeah, and selling vacuum cleaners door to door and stuff like that, right? Yeah, the vacuum cleaners is how he really pulled together the heavy money he needed to get to pay his tuition at the Pasadena Playhouse uh, before he came out uh, in '49. So he did that in Boston. He was uh, working in a card shop. He sold newspapers in the Boston Common. Um, you know, he was uh, folding chairs at the Boston Pops. I mean, this guy did everything. When he was in LA, he was selling freezers and working in pet shops and setting up fish tanks and driving a cab and he scooped ice cream. I mean, he did have, he managed an apartment. He did everything. This guy did, he was, there's nothing that he couldn't do or that was beneath him. And, and, uh, it, it was admirable, frankly, because he had no safety net when he got to LA. Yeah. Okay. And so then he finally gets his big break. He's cast in Star Trek, but then for a while, things look very uncertain, even with that. Well, yeah, I mean, my dad had this philosophy and we talk about it in the film for the love of Spock about, uh, the fact that he had a lot of, he knew a lot of people, uh, colleagues who worked in Hollywood got on a series and started spending, you know, up to the extent of their income without saving anything. Uh, and he didn't want to be that kind of a guy. He was a very frugal guy. And, and, uh, he, you know, he did a lot of odd jobs on the weekends. He was all over the country, uh, appearing at state fairs. Um, and, uh, and then during the week he was in Star Trek all week. Uh, and we, we lived a fairly, you know, modest lifestyle because he was very concerned that Star Trek would come and go and he would be back on the street, you know, trying to hustle his next gig. And, and, uh, so he was very conservative in that respect. Yeah. And so they cast him in the pilot and then the studio didn't like the pilot and they basically wanted to replace the entire cast. And Gene Roddenberry really fought to keep him in the show. Yeah. They wanted to replace the entire cast, especially <laughs> the guy with the pointed ears, because it was, you know, NBC at that time was um, a, a network of uh, family fair, really. It was Sing Along with Mitch and the Bob Hope comedy special and, and Andy Williams specials. I mean, they were, they were a very family-oriented type of network, but they were also in last place at that time, and they were looking for something, you know, uh, more interesting and edgy to try to get a, you know, get a grip on the competition. So uh, they took a chance on Star Trek, but when they saw Spock, I mean, you, you know, he looked devilish to them and frightened them. He was, they were worried they were going to alienate their, their family values audience. So they asked Gene to remove him, which she refused to do. Yeah. There's actually a guy in, in your film who says he, he went to the show and he looked around at the props and the pointy ears and stuff and told Leonard, man, you got to get off this show. This is going to kill your career. Yeah, that was that was my dad's. <laughs> that was Barry Newman, an actor and uh, also raised in the West End of Boston during the Depression. And 
and a very close friend of my dad's, and, and Barry was nervous for him. He thought, it, you know, he, he was shocked when he saw, because uh, he went out on the set to visit him. He was shocked about what he was, what, what dad looked like, and, and he was worried it was going to be, you know, uh, laughable, frankly. And, you know, and Star Trek could have been laughable. I mean, it really is very far-fetched, but the, 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 the uh, actors are so, were so good, were so, uh, you know, convicted to that, to that, those roles that they had, they were so convincing, you know, um, that they, they made it real and, and, uh, and the rest is history. I mean, there is a lot of camp to Star Trek. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of, you know, you know, winking eyes and tongue in cheek material in the show, which is great. But there's also some very, very serious drama. And I think that's what had the impact on the audience. Right. Well, I mean, like William Shatner tells this story that he cracked a joke uh, during one of um, Leonard Nimoy's performances and Leonard just was furious because he was so he took his acting so seriously and he took the character so seriously. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think, I mean, if you read uh, Bill's book on my dad, Leonard, 50 years of their relationship, uh, he talks a lot about the fact that, you know, Bill, uh, when the camera stopped rolling, Bill was uh, like to have a good time. He was a practical joker and liked to, you know, he liked to fool around. And, uh, Dad, uh, you know, was much more serious about the role because he just felt like it was very difficult for him to um, jump in and out of it, to to uh, be walking around the set waiting for a setup, waiting for the scene to start and and be joking around and, you know, one upping Bill and then just try to get back into Spock because Spock is so demanding in terms of the discipline of the character, the type of character that he was playing. So uh, sometimes they clashed occasionally for that reason. Yeah. Well, right. And William Shatner in that book, he says that some aspects of Leonard came through in Spock. He, he, he cites his intellect and his sort of reserved personality and also his political views, he says, are all a little bit reminiscent of Spock. Yeah, I'm not sure how the political views fit into that, but um, but definitely there was a lot of I mean, these guys, mel you know, talk about mind meld. These guys melded together. Uh, Spock was perfect for dad because. Uh, as my father told me, not long before he passed away, he reminded me that Spock was the quintessential outsider because he's the only alien on the bridge of the of the Enterprise. Uh, of that core crew, he's he's really the outsider, the epitome. And um, he felt that way um, as a young man growing up, you know, a young teenager in Boston, because they lived in a very defined neighborhood of immigrants, uh, Italians, Irish, and uh, and Russian Jews primarily, and. Uh, my dad always wanted to get, you know, kind of transcend that and get himself out of there and find a way to integrate himself with American society, American culture, which is why he left at 18 on his own. Um, and, you know, that that kind of personal experience that he had, he really brought to the Spock character because he told me that's what the Spock was all about, how to integrate himself, how to become a part of the crew, how to give the best that he had to offer for the benefit of the whole. And so they really kind of led parallel lives. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm thinking of in terms of the politics is that your dad was a big supporter of the peace movement, and it seems a very Spock-like thing to do. <laughs> well, live long and prosper, I, w I would assume that, you know, that, that's the underpinnings of peace. Uh, uh, that is true. My parents were very politically active in the 60s. And uh, in fact, uh, my father campaigned. He was flying his private plane campaigning 35 states for George McGovern, the peace candidate in 1972. Um, and uh, yeah, they were, my parents were both very active. We were at uh, uh, demonstrations against the war in Vietnam uh, at UCLA, I remember, um, and a number of other locations. 
So, uh, yeah, you know, that that would seem to fit in with, with Spock's ideology. Yeah. And then I think your, your dad also, he played a big role in forming Spock's personality, right? That there wasn't a whole lot about the character on the page when they started, and he sort of contributed a lot to that character. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, there's an evolution, and we really kind of go into that in the film, uh, in the documentary on Spock. Um, I mean, he is uh, the brainchild of Gene Roddenberry. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we have to really give you know Gene the, the, the credit and the due that he's, he you know, greatly deserves, because, again, Gene fought to keep the character in the show, and Gene fought to have the pointed ears on that character. Um, but, uh, and the, the fact that, uh, Spock was half human was also written into the character for him to try to deal with it, which created a lot of internal tension between his Vulcan logical side and his human, more emotional side. But, and, and there were, but there were a number of instances during the course of production of that first season where either directors gave dad notes to help him develop that character, um, or our dad brought in other experiences that he had. We talk about uh, the, the, the effect of Harry Belafonte and how he performed on Spock's character and these other little characteristics of Spock, the, the Vulcan salute is dad's and the, uh, the Vulcan uh, neck nerve pinch is also dad's. So it's, it's really a combination of factors, but yes, there's a lot of Leonard, uh, a lot of himself. He took Spock very seriously and was always thinking of new uh, creative ways to expand on the character. Well, do you want to just say a little bit more about Harry Belafonte and the and the nerve pinch, how those came about? Well, the Belafonte thing, we, he talks about in, uh, again, in the documentary, the fact that uh, when he saw Harry at the Greek theater in Los Angeles in the mid-60s, uh, that Harry would come out and just start singing without, without a whole lot of uh, theatrics. He's not moving his body. But when he did move his body uh, at, at very dramatic moments in the song, it really resounded with the audience, and the audience started to really react to that, uh, which taught him that if you were minimal, if you maintain a minimal, minimal presence, then when you do actually um, something that is more theatrical uh, with your body, with your person, then it has a much more profound effect. And he talks about that in terms of the, of the eyebrow, as an example. Um, that's where he kind of came up with the idea. The eyebrow is, is very, very uh, substantial commentary without having to say anything. Um, the, the nerve pinch was something he came up with when, uh, you know, the script was written that, uh, Spock hits the, uh, the evil Kirk, uh, Kirk is, um, somehow has, uh, <laughs> divided himself into good and evil and, and Spock has to knock out the evil Kirk and he was supposed to do it with the butt of a phaser. Uh, and that's when he thought that he should come up with something more creative and hence the nerve pinch. Yeah. And the salute too was drawn from his, his childhood, right? Right. Salute is straight out of um, the Orthodox Synagogue in the West End of Boston. And uh, it is uh, a part of the uh, gesture that the, uh, the, the, the chief priest rabbis make during Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish New Year, in blessing the congregation. They do it with both hands um, under their prayer shawls because you're not supposed to see it. It's so powerful. Um, and, um, and they extend their hands out and they make that gesture with their fingers. And, and Dad... Uh, was intrigued by that, fascinated by that. It was something that always interested him. It stuck with him, and he thought it might be an interesting uh, gesture to use for Vulcans to uh, greet each other, and and uh, the rest is history. I mean, one line that really jumps out at me in the film is Walter Koenig says something like, a thousand actors could have played our parts, the rest of the crew, but only Leonard Nimoy could play Spock. 
Well, uh, yeah, that may be true. Uh, you know, Spock was offered to other actors. They, the network and studio insisted that uh, Gene offer it to uh, actors who were more established than my dad at the time. And, and um, apparently it was offered to Marty Landau, who was on Mission Impossible at the same time. He turned it down because there was not enough stuff going on with the role. And, and uh, DeForest Kelly, who was definitely a major established actor, um, at, at that time, uh, he turned it down for the similar reasons. So, uh, my dad wanted, uh, uh, Gene wanted my dad from the start because they had worked together in a previous TV episode and Gene just liked the performance that dad gave, but he liked the way he looked. Dad had this, just the physical appearance, his thin, you know, gaunt kind of high cheekbone look was something that Gene was, was going for. But, the other thing is that, um, yeah, there was just a lot about dad, I think, uh, in his, in his nature. We talked about his reserved kind of nature. Uh, he could, you know, very thoughtful and introspective, um, that seemed to be really suited for what Spock was all about. And he just seemed to, uh, to really step into that. It was a very good fit, uh, from the very beginning. But as I say, a lot of what came of Spock was really something that evolved over time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so take us back in time. So when Star Trek first comes out, just what was it like in your house? The show was suddenly on TV. No, we were we went crazy. It was nuts. We were we loved it. We were so excited. Uh, you know, I mean, my sister and I were TV fanatic. We were just watching TV every night. I wasn't doing any homework. I'm tired. I wasn't practicing clarinet. I was watching stuff and watching similar fare. I mean, I was a you know Lost in Space fanatic and Outer Limits and and these kind of shows and. Um, very much aware. We were old enough to be very aware uh, of what this meant. Uh, I'm very excited about the prospect of Star Trek coming out. And we were waiting, you know, anticipating because they started production in May. The show didn't air until September. So we were waiting, waiting, waiting for, for that big premiere evening. And then when, when the show very quickly became popular, it was just a very exciting time in our household. A lot of activity, a lot of um, attention, uh, the, you know, the press, the photographers, the mail, the fan mails we talk about in the documentary. I mean, these were all, you know, very, it was a very exciting time for us. I mean, there's this really funny shot. Uh, it's this sort of outtake where you come out in your Spock years, uh, sort of su surprise your dad. Yeah, this is one of the, you know, the many attempts to get Leonard to loosen up and crack <laughs> up, you know, get, get him out of his Spock demeanor was that, uh, they're shooting a, a scene where Spock is in the captain's chair and Kirk is on the planet below. And um, during the course of his conversation with the, with the captain, you know, they're rehearsing the scene and somebody pulled me off the set and took me to makeup. Uh, and I was sitting for Fred Phillips who did my dad's makeup every day. And Fred cut my hair and, and, you know, and did my, uh, the pointed, you know, uh, the, uh, sideburns and uh, put a pair of ears on me, shaved my eyebrows, and they had me come out of the turbo lift and kiss my dad hello and and uh and he uh he you know lost his spot composure for a couple of minutes. The whole you know the whole crew in 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 it's all dark out there, but the crew was just laughing hysterically. You can't see them because the set is lit and everybody behind the cameras in in black, you know, but they they were there and they they fully enjoyed the joke. <laughs> And then William Shatner, in his book, he talks about how he th sort of thought he was going to be the star of the show, that he, he was the hero and he had lead billing and all this stuff. But then very quickly, the audience seemed to fixate on Spock and be fascinated by Spock. Yeah, uh, you know, George Takei comments on that as well in our film. Um, apparently, that is kind of the way things went down. I mean, it is 
you know, Bill was a very established actor, a very talented guy, clearly, and brought so much to the role, brought a lot to the role that really helped Dad stay introspective with Spock. We, he talks about this quite a bit, that Bill's, you know, panache and, uh, and, and very, you know, kind of aggressive romantic uh, take on Kirk, and it, which is incredible. You know, I love Kirk. We love Kirk. But it helped Dad stay within the confines of what he wanted to do with Spock. So the pair was, you know, he, you know, Spock really needed Kirk and McCoy for that matter uh, to really develop their characters. It really is a, a, you know, a group effort in that respect. But yeah, Spock was different. Spock was cool. Spock was interesting. People were into Spock, and um, there was a lot of uh, reaction to Spock. Surprising the network, in fact, the network, you know, started saying. You know, we it, the network was like, we always loved Spock. We always wanted Spock, and we want more Spock stories now. Why aren't you doing more Spock stories? We love we love this guy. We've always loved this guy when they're trying to get rid of him from day one. So um, that, I think, was a lot for Bill to deal with. And and uh, But, you know, they had a lot of camaraderie and a lot of competition. Uh, I think it helped the show. Uh, they were, there was a lot of one-upmanship. I think it helped the show. Um, you look on screen, the chemistry is all there uh, between the two of them, between the three of them. Um, I think we're really lucky that those particular individuals, you know, if only Leonard Nimoy could play Spock, I think only Bill Shatner could have played Kirk because we, we had Jeff Hunter beforehand, and Jeff is an excellent actor. I'm a big fan of his, but but he was very introspective, and it was a very different take on the characters. So I think we we all benefited in the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so especially since the title of this documentary is For the Love of Spock, I was sort of expecting it to be just nonstop praise and adulation, but you really go into some of the messy realities of, of what life was like. Yeah, I mean, we wa- I wanted to show, as, I, as, this, as the, we continued on in the production of this project, uh, more and more people, my stepmother, you know, primarily, really, she was the prime mover, uh, Susan, my dad's uh, widow, um, really was emphatic about me including my own perspective, my own relationship to Spock and my dad. Um, because the feeling was, and more and more people supported on that, the feeling was it would make the project more unique if I could kind of tell my own story, add my own voice. Otherwise, there's so many great documentary filmmakers, uh, you know, around. They could easily do a documentary on Mr. Spock and Leonard Nimoy. Um, but adding my perspective made it slightly different and um, gave it a different perspective on what it was like being in a celebrity family and dealing, you know, uh, being the son of somebody who had become an iconic figure and was very much in demand by the public. Um, we couldn't go out in public uh, really without dad being mobbed um, and having to share him with the public. And it's just, it's very challenging. I mean, we had a lot of typical issues together, uh, being fathers and sons. That, you know, we all have issues together. Um, ours was a little more magnified by the fact that my dad was this, had become, had created this iconic character. So we do explore some of that to a certain degree. But, you know, but I, and I do it because we ended up in a good place, my dad and I, during the end of his life. We were very close. And I just thought it was a, a you know, a part of the story that was worth telling. Right. I don't know if you've seen William Shatner's Captain's documentary, but that's something that really sticks with me from that is that it seems like everyone who was on Star Trek kind of had their family life suffer enormously because it was just so all-consuming being on, being on those shows. Yeah, I mean, Kate Mulgrew talks about that extensively. Uh, that's that's a tough gig uh, to be away from your family, you know, particularly when you're a mom, you know, with young kids uh, for 12 to 14 hours a day, five days a week, and then making appearances and doing press and 
and promotional stuff on, you know, on the side, on the weekends, very, very challenging for a family to, to get by. My mother had to hold down the fort without my dad around. And, and my sister and I gave my mother a run for her money. I can tell you that, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it's definitely, um, you know, you do make sacrifices as a family. You do. Um, I would, I would, I would do it again in a second because I think it was worthwhile. And, and the key for me is that my father really turned things around at the end of his life, the third act of his life. It was about family. I mean, he had done what he needed to do. He um, was very happy with where, you know, what he had accomplished in his life. And he had grandchildren now uh, at that point. And uh, he really made family a priority in his life, um, which I think was just a wonderful way to bookend uh, the whole the whole experience, the whole journey. Yeah. I mean, it was surprising to me watching this film to learn that he had been such a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker. I mean, I know that that's this is naive, but I guess, you know, I'm, I'm like, that's not logical. You know, it's just kind of silly, but you sort of can't help identifying the actor with the character. Well, yeah, I mean, that's identifying the actor with the character is why my dad wrote an um, autobiography entitled I Am Not Spock, um, because people were just confusing him all the time. I mean, you know, uh, mothers were introducing dad in an airport to their children as Mr. Spock, and the kid would look at him and say, what, what are you talking about? Spock's got ears. Spock's got bangs. Spock's got a uniform. This guy ain't Spock. You know, this is some schmo in the airport. You know, they don't, they didn't get it. And, uh, and it was, he was so, you know, closely identified with that character that he was trying to explain, you know, he mistitled the book, really. He's, he, he's confessed this repeatedly. Uh, that he didn't mean to distance himself from the character, he didn't mean to diss the character. He's just trying to let people know, um, my name is Leonard Nimoy and I do not come from Vulcan. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, dad had his, you know, he, this is the way he decompressed. We talked about this a lot. I mean, a lot of people smoked and drank, you know, to deal with the pressure. Um, wasn't that unusual, really. It was just kind of the norm for us. It wasn't until later on that he started to realize it was how much of an effect these things were having on his life and, and, you know, decided to make a change in his life, thankfully for the rest of the family, frankly. But we talk about all this and, and he talks about all this. Again, this is something that I would not even have delved into had he himself not come out uh, openly to discuss this in that interview that he does with Bill Shatner. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the book, I Am Not Spot, because I just sort of heard growing up, I just sort of heard that he had written this book and I think there was just sort of a sense among people that he had been trying to disavow the character. But as I understand it now, it was he meant the title much more in a sort of like wry, joking way. And people didn't really get that, or a lot of people, I guess. Well, he meant it literally. He meant that he was trying to educate some people in the public to understand that, um, you, you know, that there's two personalities, basically, that we're dealing with here. And he's an actor and he can he's capable of other roles as well. But um there was a lot of, you know, I mean, it was just misinterpreted. A lot of people saw the title and didn't read the book. The problem was that this is, you know, in the mid-1970s, and there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of um, Star Trek was in syndication, and the fan base was expanding, and people wanted more Star Trek. And they thought the reason why they were not getting more Star Trek, either a new series or feature film or whatever, they thought they weren't getting it because Leonard Nimoy didn't want to play Spock anymore. And uh, they, the fans reacted negatively. Dad told me he got a lot of angry fan mail, a lot of really, really heavy, heavy um, anger coming, you know, directed towards him, which didn't really dissipate until the first feature came out uh, in 1980 or so. So um, 
And for the rest of his career, Dad was explaining, again, why he really made a mistake in titling the book that way. Yeah. I mean, just as an example of fans not having boundaries, uh, in Shatner's book, there's this anecdote that sticks out in my mind where at one of Leonard's divorce hearings, a judge asked him for an autograph. Uh, yeah, that's that I don't recall as possible. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there was a, yeah, there was a lot of craziness. People, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, it's uh, people, you know, people want, they feel that they want to be close to somebody. They know, they feel they know somebody, you know, um, they, 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 um, they feel a, a kinship with that celebrity uh, and that role they played. And they want to get close to them. They want to get to know them. They want some of their time and attention. That's you know perfectly understandable. I mean, one of my idols is Neil Young. And in an interview, interview, he said, you know, the disadvantage that we have is that people know us so well. They know our work and we know nothing about them. And there's so many of them that we don't know anything about. And it's a huge disadvantage. And uh, uh, and people just want to, you know, be in, in Leonard's orbit. So this is what we talk about in the film a lot about my struggle trying to get my dad's attention when there's such a huge demand for him from the fan base. Right. And there's a part where he says to you that he always felt like he didn't measure up to his father, who was a barber. And he says, you know, if, if I feel that way about trying to measure up to my father, the barber, I can't even imagine how you feel trying to measure up to this pop culture icon. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that that letter really kind of says a lot of what of what I had to deal with. It's it's a uh, it's a very challenging situation for a kid to be in. I mean, one of the pro problems that I don't really go into in much detail in the film, but the problem is that, you know, you're in this family and there's all this heat on the family. There's all this, you know, sun shining. There's all this attention. Um, and, and you're in it. Uh, you're, you're just kind of bathing in this warmth and this glow, but it's not you. It's not me. It's him. This is, he created it. This is who he wants to be. This is who he is. So the real challenge is to find out who I am and break away from that and have an understanding that, you know, I'm just that, you know, that we're separate people and I have to create my own identity. And it takes, you know, it, it takes a lot to really focus on doing what I wanted to do and pursuing something I wanted to do, uh, which was to do almost anything that he couldn't do, which was almost nothing. You know, Leonard could do just about everything. But that's really why I went to, you know, which was another motivating factor for me to go to college and go to law school, frankly, because it was something that Leonard uh, was not, you know, inclined to do. And I felt a real sense of pride that that I could create my own identity apart from him. Right. So, yeah. So you went to law school and then you were in sort of a music entertainment sort of law. Yeah, I was uh, I was in a law firm for three years and then spent four years in various capacities in the music industry. and. Uh, working for uh, mostly for uh, subsidiary record companies under capital, capital EMI at the time. And, um, you know, it was fun for a while. It was great. I got to meet David Bowie twice uh, because he was on the EMI label. Um, that was probably the high point of practicing law for a corporation was meeting David Bowie. Um, and because of that, I just didn't, it wasn't, I wanted to do something more creative and more interesting. And that's when um, I decided to get out. Right. So then you decided to become a director, a TV director. Yes. I went to an acting class. Uh, Jeff Corey was my father's acting instructor in the early days. Uh, my dad took over that class and was teaching acting as a way to make ends meet before Star Trek. Um, he took over for Jeff Corey and Jeff was a good friend of the families and he invited me around that time 
uh, right around uh, 1990 to come out to his uh, studio to watch him work. And I was just completely overwhelmed with emotion by what was happening in that acting class. And I stayed with him off and on for almost two years. And, and really, but it was just that first moment, I just realized this is so much more interesting than what I am doing. And, and I have to, I really wanted to, you know, I wanted to be an actor's director. I was in that class to learn the craft of acting and to see what, how, how Jeff helped young actors with performance issues. And it was very inspiring. I told my dad what had happened. He was completely empathetic uh, because Jeff changed his life as an actor, really helped him develop his craft. And then I started taking night courses. And then, you know, my dad took me under his wing and was, was teaching me everything. And I'm really indebted to him. I got a lot of really interesting, introspective stuff uh, from my dad's experience, uh, both acting and directing, uh, having directed the Star Trek features. So, uh, and Three Men and a Baby. So I was very fortunate that I could make that career change. Right. And you got started directing um, Star Trek Next Generation, right? That is correct. Next Generation, two episodes. Yep. That was interesting. I mean, so how did, how did that come about? Well, my first job was really, I shadowed Nick Meyer, who was directing Star Trek VI. Dad was executive producing that feature, and uh, he asked Nick, to hire me as an assistant uh, so that I could see what it was like to make a feature film. Uh, and, and Nick did uh, much to my, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, complete joy and good luck because I learned a lot um, watching Nick and watching the various people who worked, you know, the producers and the cinema, cinematographer, production designers, wardrobe. I mean, I really got a sense of how these things come together. But when that wrapped, when Star Trek VI wrapped, uh, Dad suggested that I go talk to Rick Berman, who was executive producing uh, The Next Generation at the time. And uh, I went to Rick and I asked him if I could just observe, really, and uh, follow some of his directors around. They have a number of different directors during the course of a season directing different episodes. And Rick, again, to my good luck, said, yeah, sure. And I was on watching them direct, you know, watching directors on the next generation for an entire season, getting to know the show, getting to know the, the crew, getting to know the cast. And then uh, finally, uh, Rick felt confident that I had learned enough um, from them that uh, he gave me a job. And so what was that like actually directing episodes of Star Trek? Uh, well, it was a, a great privilege because I was a huge fan of the next generation and I loved the cast. But it's very challenging work. I mean, you don't really know what you're doing until you're in it, you know, and I didn't know what I was doing. It took a while for me to really get accustomed to uh, what it, the life of a TV director is all about and what the, you know, what the, uh, you know, what's involved. It's very challenging. It's very difficult work. It's very demanding work. It takes a lot of preparation. Um, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a long, long hours. You finish late at night and start early in the morning. Um, you know, you're under a lot of stress because it's, it's about beat the clock, about trying to get the work done, the work that is required of you for the day within the time allotted. And it's the fastest 12 to 14 hour day I've ever had in my life. I mean, it just, the time just flies because you have to really keep moving. Um, but it was a great educational experience and it really helped me, it helped launch me in the rest of my directing career, which lasted another, you know, which I did for about 10 seasons, 45 hours of one hour dramas. Um, so it was fun. It was good. Yeah. Well, I mean, earlier you mentioned you were a fan of The Outer Limits, and I know you you uh, directed an episode or two of The Outer Limits, right? Yeah, that also was early in, in uh, the directing assignments that I got. Um, 
they were going to reboot the series on Showtime and and my dad had been in the series as a supporting role in one of my favorite episodes, iRobot, um, which I watched as a kid. And um, they were at the time only hiring Canadian directors because it was a Canadian content, content show. They get all kinds of tax benefits and credits if they hire primarily Canadian cast and crew um, or just crew and production personnel. And... Um, and cast as well. And, and dad said, well, here's what I suggest. Go to them, go to the producers. They were here and out based in LA and tell them that I'm willing to, to participate in that episode. Um, and we can remake that episode. And if they will attach you as director and that's what we pitched to them. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, and I think it was a very good experience for me. Um, it really, I really kind of came into my own as a director. I was very much more confident then. it was, it was great working with Dad. He had a lot of inventive ideas. I think we turned out a really, really strong episode, and it was very um, important for me. For uh, it helped me get an agent and a lot of other directing assignments. So it was a big turning point for me. Was that intimidating at all, directing him? Yeah, directing Dad could be sometimes intimidating. Um, you, you know, but not really. I mean, mostly it was collaborative. I mean, the, the only the challenge we had was that he had just finished directing a pilot episode of another TV show and they had just wrapped the week before he got to us in Vancouver. So he was and it was a very challenging um, pilot episode that he had directed. So uh, he was pretty beat up by that and, and needed a couple of days to recover. Um, but once the ball, you know, the ball got rolling on our episode, um, it was a real collaborative effort. He was very helpful to me, um, very, very respectful of me. He would make suggestions, but, you know, never, in, you know, out loud in front of the, the uh, cast and crew. We would, you know, while we during setups, while the crew was working, he would take me aside and whisper stuff to me, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, just a great way, a great learning experience. So I was very lucky to have him. Right. And so you mentioned you directed these 45 TV episodes, and then your career kind of came to an end. You talk about this in your memoir, My Incredibly Wonderful, Miserable Life. Do you want to just say a little bit about what, what happens at this point? Well, yeah, I kind of crashed and burned uh, a little bit, and, uh, and uh, I kind of had to readjust and take some time off, uh, deal with some family issues, deal with some substance abuse issues. Um, I had to focus on, um, I, you know, I had, uh, my marriage was failing. I had to, you know, make some, take some action regarding that. And I finally, that marriage ended during that period of time. It was just a very rough time for me. And, uh, I needed to, to, uh, take time out and, and, uh, start repairing some of my personal relationships and working on myself and recovery, frankly. Uh, and then I, I started teaching at the, uh, at the film academy, New York Film Academy had a huge presence out in in Burbank, and um, and I applied for a job and started teaching there full time for many years, and was very satisfied doing that. It was just a better balance for me, and just um, uh, you know, a, a just much better for me to be doing, um, and which I have been continuing to do. I love teaching, and I was continuing that up until just the the last couple of years when I took the time off to to work on the Boston documentary with my dad, and then for the love of Spock. Right. In the, in the first chapter of your memoir, it's really funny because you're meeting with an agent and you're saying you're telling him that you want to write a memoir and he's getting dollar signs in his eyes. And he's like, we can call it Son of Spock. This is going to be great. And you tell him, no, I want to write a different kind of memoir. And you say his face just kind of falls. Well, yeah, he thought it was going to be a tell all book or something. I don't know what he thought it was. Uh, 
you know, he didn't, he didn't know it was a writer. He thought we were going to hire somebody to write this book with me. And, and, uh, and I was going to tell the story of my, the trials and tribulations of being the son of Leonard Nimoy or something. I, you know, I'm not, that's kind of where he thought it was leading to. Um, when I explained to him that I'd been writing for a number of years and, and, uh, I have enough material for a book and I've been in writing classes and I always wanted to publish something. He was, uh, he, his interest level dropped dramatically to the point where, uh, he was no longer returning my phone calls. So, I mean, when you publish this book, which is, you know, it focuses on your substance abuse and divorce and your family life and things, what sort of reactions did you get from people to it? Well, um, not much because I think probably six people bought the book. So there wasn't <laughs> much to say. I mean, there were a couple of really good reviews, uh, which I appreciated. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of uh, feedback about the book. There was, it's interesting, when we had our Kickstarter campaign last year to raise money for the love of Spock, somebody commented on the, uh, during the course of the campaign that she was willing to contribute to the campaign, but she wasn't sure that Adam Nimoy was the right guy to be making this movie because she had read My Incredibly Wonderful, Miserable Life. And I do talk about a lot of the trouble I was having with my dad at the time. And, and she loved Spock and Leonard Nimoy and didn't, and didn't want somebody detracting from that. Um, and I, I had to write her back to say that that book was written at a time when I was in an estrangement period from my dad, but a lot had happened since then. That book was published in 08, um, just about the time that my dad and I were starting to reconcile. And, uh, I really appreciated that comment from her. Um, but that my dad and I had a very loving and connected relationship the last four or five years of his life. And, and, um, and I, and I think, and I felt like I was going to do justice to our relationship by, by being the guy to make the film for the love of Spock. So um, I had that kind of reaction, but, there was, but not a whole lot. I mean, most people have simply not seen the book. Yeah. Well, actually I bought it and read it this past week. So I guess now there are seven people who have read seven it. Seven people. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. But I, I couldn't put it down. I really enjoyed it. And the, the, the chapters that are the um, typical conversation with my teenage daughter chapters, uh, my girlfriend and I were reading those together and I, I just thought they were hilarious. That's so kind of you. Thank you. Hmm. Um, okay, so talk about um, For the Love of Spock. It's out. It's uh, coming out soon. I guess people have started watching it, right? What kind of reactions are you getting it, getting to it so far? Well, people seem to like it. I mean, I mean, the general reaction is very positive, uh, you know, uh, and, and then all over the place. People say they want they leave wanting more, which is good. And some people say um, it's too long. Take 10 more minutes out of it. So it's uh, really across the board. You know, we get we have a wide range of reactions. The press has been very good to us. Uh, we screened it at the Montreal Film Festival a few weeks ago, and we we received the Audience Award for Best Documentary. Um, I love watching the film with a with a, a new audience um, because there's uh, people are really reacting to it. There's a lot of I think there's a lot, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of great stuff in it. I think I'm really proud of the work we did, and people seem to be responding to it. I, I think we did a you know, we had a very good um, a group of people producing this film, and we put a lot of thought, a lot of effort into it, a lot of editorial work. Uh, we had a lot of uh, help, uh, you know, by people contributing stuff, uh, the, the studios and uh, and uh, people contributing music and film clips. And I think I think people are satisfied with the job and surprised, you know, occasionally with the job we've done. So, uh, again, the press has been very positive towards us. So I can't, you know, be more than, you know, I can't be any more happy with the response we've been getting. I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about who appears in the movie and sort of what, yeah, who who helped, you know, get it done? 
Yeah, well, the the movie is um, we interviewed. We have over thirty new interviews for this film, um, uh, which we uh, conducted over the course of uh, four or five months. We have the original cast members, the still surviving original cast members, uh, Bill and Michelle and Walter and George. Uh, we have um, the new cast members and this, the new J.J. Abrams incarnation of Star Trek. We have that. We went up to Vancouver, and we were they they were very welcoming to us, um, and and uh, we were able to to uh, interview just about everybody on the new Starship Enterprise. Um, we have uh, Nick Meyer, uh, you know, uh, who is responsible for directing and writing Star Trek II, which really got the the whole film franchise back on track, um, and was uh, and directed Star Trek VI and co-wrote uh, Star Trek IV, and is involved with the new Star Trek series coming out. Um, we had J.J. Abrams, um, you know, a key player in reinvigorating Star Trek. Uh, so we have we have um, scientists who are inspired by Spock from JPL, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We interviewed. Um, you know, we there's a lot of people who really stepped up and were very interested in supporting us in this project. So toward the end of the film, it shows you kind of starting to go to Star Trek conventions. Kind of what's that like attending a Star Trek convention as the son of Leonard Nimoy? Well, now, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I, you know, the Vegas convention that I attended last year that we, we filmed was really the first major convention that I attended on my own. I mean, I went to the Chicago convention that my dad was at. I think this was 2012 uh, when he bid uh, them goodbye. It was his last convention appearance. The whole family was there. But other than that, I would I would not go to a convention. It was just not for me. It was... Um, I just didn't um, feel I wanted to be noticed there. I didn't want to be there as Leonard Nimoy's son. Again, it's kind of an identity issue, I guess. I just felt more comfortable uh, in my own skin if I'm not always identified uh, with my dad. But but now that we have created this film, and now that I'm contributing something to Star Trek, you know, liturgy, the lore, the phenomenon, my own contribution. Um, I feel like I've earned my place at the table a little bit, and I'm much more comfortable showing up at the conventions to talk about the film, to promote the film, to talk about my dad and the, and the uh, you know, the experience of growing up with Spock, because that's really what the film is about. So now it's a much, and people are, are so happy to have me there. I mean, they, you know, they just um, are welcoming and, and warm. And um, last year was wonderful because we were still adjusting to a, a world without Leonard Nimoy. And it was nice to see a lot of other people who were also mourning the loss of my dad. It was a real collective kind of experience and it was very heartwarming and very comforting to me. Do any particular people or stories or anything stand out in your mind of people talking about what he meant to them? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple, but mostly it's, it's the, the cast that we interviewed up in Vancouver of Star Trek. We're, we're absolutely uniformly emphatic that, that my dad participating in this new incarnation of Star Trek with the first film, Trek 09, and then uh, Into Darkness, um, really gave them a sense that they were continuing a tradition and not just some spin-off. They really felt connected, uh, that, that my dad's presence really uh, helped them feel that they were continuing on this tradition, that they had been really given the torch. You know, there was a passing of this, of this kind of spirituality that my dad and that spot brought to the whole project. And they told me, uh, one after another, that that spirit and that energy was still with them as the crew, as the cast, uh, while they were making uh, Star Trek Beyond. And um, 
then it just kind of blew my mind. It's like, uh, wow, he had that kind of impact on people where he's still resonating, even though he's gone, he's still very much around. And they, you know, the, and, and everybody on the new cast wanted to make that clear to me that he's still very present among them all and inspiring them to do great work. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've mentioned William Shatner's book a couple of times. It's called Leonard, My 50-Year Friendship with a Remarkable Man. Have you read that? Like, do you have any thoughts about that book? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like it. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a kind of a loving, you know, a portrait of, uh, of my dad and um, reverential about their relationship. And um, I, I like it. It's also honest, as you know, uh, in a lot of areas. Um, it touches on some of the conflict and controversy that they dealt with together. Uh, my dad and Bill had a, a very complicated relationship, um, you know, a lot of ups and downs, but they were, uh, you know, at times they were estranged uh, and at times they were very close. So um, I think it's a fairly uh, interesting and accurate portrayal of where they were at. And, you know, and Bill loved my dad and mourns his loss as much as, you know, the rest of us, frankly, that's my feeling when I talk to Bill. And uh, and I just think it's a it's a positive uh, point of view. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I just read it last night. And one other anecdote from it that I'd never heard before that really sticks in my mind is that uh, Leonard meets uh, President Obama. This is where he, before he becomes president. He's running for president at a fundraiser and Obama gives him the Vulcan salute. And Leonard replies, it would be logical if you became president. And I just really like that. It just says how yeah, it's just another example of what a impact what a wide-ranging impact he had well yeah i mean when the president of the united states issues a press release on the passing of leonard nimoy about his love of spock uh that's a pretty powerful statement of the impact of leonard nimoy absolutely yeah another thing from your memoir that i thought was pretty funny is there's a part where you're working as a substitute teacher and a student asks if you're related to leonard nimoy and you say how do you know leonard nimoy and he says well because he's on the simpsons and that's, yeah. that's how he knows. <laughs> that's how he knows of him. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, guys, the kid says to me, are you his brother? <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved. Yeah. Before I was teaching at the film academy, I needed a job. And my, my first job in recovery was substitute teaching for the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. And uh, uh, and I was in a science class, oddly enough. And that's when that kid came up to me and asked me about uh, Leonard Nimoy and, and told me that he was a big fan of, of Leonard and the Simpsons. So I thought that was amusing because I never hear, you never hear that. It's always about Spock. Yeah. Yeah. And it just says like how, how young people are maybe going to experience him differently than, than other people. It's funny. I, I heard you said that people used to come up to him and say, Oh, my kids are big fans of yours. And that later people would come up and say, Oh, my grandparents are such big fans of yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing how multi-generational it is and, you know, the stuff just keeps going. It keeps getting picked up in popular culture, Star Trek, uh, on and on. We talk about this in the film. You know, Big Bang Theory is uh, a hugely successful popular show now, but they, they keep, you know, riffing off of Star Trek and Spock. So it, it, these are the kind of things that just keep him a very much um, a part of the of the public consciousness. I mean, he's Spock is around and he will continue to be around and and hopefully entertain and inspire people for generations to come because he just seems to be somebody that res the character just resonates with people across generational lines uh, across the globe and I just I, you know it's such a powerful thing um, and it never my dad was never jaded by that 
that realization. I mean, he's been dealing with that, you know, for, for almost he he had been for almost 50 years dealing with the immense popularity of Spock. But he was always amazed by the extent um, the the people who come from faraway places knowing who he was. Um, that always thrilled him. And, and in fact, when we started to make the documentary, he was um, doing some research and, and he Googled Spock's ears and came back with 150,000 websites <laughs> that referenced those famous ears. And he he was amused by that. I you know it's like he was never it was never old news to him, which I thought was really something that I admired. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so great. Uh, okay, so unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So, Adam, do you have any other projects you want to mention? Any final words? Anything like that? Well, I'm I'm working. I'm hoping to, and I am working with NASA on a Mars project. That's my next documentary. I want to do something about the Mars mission. Um, they're, you know, NASA is very heavily invested in Star Trek. They love Star Trek. Um, I'm invited to a lot of uh, uh, NASA and, and JPL related events. We interviewed uh, JPL NASA scientists who are inspired by Spock. Um, and there's so much now going on uh, to get ready for this mission to Mars, manned mission, they hope, in the 2030s, um, that I've been talking with them about making a documentary related to um, all these different um, uh, aspects, all these components, all these moving parts that have to come together to make that mission possible. All right, yeah, that sounds great. So if people want to follow you and sort of keep an eye out for when that documentary maybe comes out, how do they, do you have a website or Twitter? Or? For the love of Spock .com, uh, and uh, they'll find us. Uh, and we have, uh, we're, um, we are going to be um, in theaters on the 9th of September. And we are going to be uh, on demand through iTunes. Uh, we're there now. Um, you can order the film now. It'll be released on the 9th. Uh, and that is the way to find out what we're doing. All right, great. Yeah, so it's a great, great documentary. Everyone go check it out. And so we've been speaking with Adam Nimoy. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. David, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Adam Nimoy for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including this new one from a listener whose name I'm not quite sure how to pronounce. It's spelled Q-P-O-I-O-U-Y. And the review says, Favorite podcast. Not sure why I love this so much. Reminds me of when I was a kid and read classic sci-fi and played Dungeons and Dragons. I guess because David Barkertley is such a great interviewer, and he's a writer, so he asks intuitive questions. I'm interested in the difference between hard and soft sci-fi, and I love hearing stories about people like me being successful. Also, it's interesting to see how sci-fi has gone slightly mainstream. In the late 1970s and 1980s, not everyone had turned into a geek yet. So, big thanks again for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Epsilon, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy the show and want it to continue please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell 
no one. Thank you for listening. 